0: it's a different perspective to imagine King David because Advent for him was only looking forward. This word Advent is a very interesting word. It's literally the arrival of a notable person or event. So to date, there has been no greater event or arrival of a notable person than the birth of Jesus. It has become the cornerstone of our calendar 2,000 years since what? Yeah, the birth of Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, born of a virgin, born in the prophesied Bethlehem, born in a stable, placed in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes, visited by shepherds and a magi. To date, it is without doubt the greatest event and arrival of the most notable person that's ever walked the planet. James Allen Francis, just over a hundred years ago, put it this way. Look at the screen. Here is a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. And then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never owned a home. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He had nothing to do with this world except the naked power of his divine manhood. While still a young man, the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. His executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth while he was dying. That was his coat. And when he was dead, he was taken down and laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Here's where it was a hundred years ago that he wrote this. Nineteen wide centuries have come and gone, and today he is the centerpiece of the human race and the leader of the column of progress. I am far within the mark when I say that all of the armies that ever marched, all of the navies that ever were built... And all of the parliaments that ever sat, all of the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as has that one solitary life. And every year the entire world is inundated with songs and stories and special meals and gift exchanges, and parties, and traditions, all pointing to this one solitary Advent that we affectionately call Christmas. Christmas. And during this season of Advent, our culture and world seem to transform a bit for the better. Salvation Army bell ringers remind us that it's not just a season of getting, but it's more about giving. Radios play songs of joy and cheer, reminding us of sweet memories that we've had, and yet those we're still making. Stores and online sites bulge with different gift ideas and displays. Cities and towns decorate squares and streets with colorful lights. And for a few weeks, light invades our darkness, encouraging a better version of ourselves. We seem to be better people in December. But Advent was never intended only to look back to the past. Daniel Webster, still our finest Uh, definition author, really captured this word Advent. Look how he says it. Number one, it is the period including the four Sundays just before Christmas. Number two, it's Christ's birth. Look at number three. Christ's second coming to earth, the Judgment Day, Advent, of course, for a coming or arrival. So by definition, all of us today, here and now, we are living between Advents, between the birth and the return of Jesus. And a part of Advent is looking back, but yet an equal part is looking ahead. And hope is found in both. Our hope found its footing in Jesus' birth, and our hope finds its future in Jesus' return. So while our culture and world seem to change a bit, for a few weeks every year in December, the reality is Christmas, unfortunately, doesn't seem to linger like you would think. Because when the culture stops thinking about it, it seems like it's kind of an out-of-signed, out-of-mind thing with us. Now, I know some of you, you Christmas shop all year long, and you, you're good at that. and Don't stop. I'm not saying that. I do think for the most of us, though, the first Advent has a way of kind of escaping. And it's only an annual thing that we visit once a year. For some of us, Christmas can be a tough time. Uh, Maybe you grew up in a home where you didn't have that kind of special treatment and special love, special gift exchange. Some of us grew up in homes that were kind of rough, and that roughness was even accented that much more at Christmas. Maybe it even exposed some ugliness that was in our families. So where's the hope in that? Yeah, pastor, come on, talk to me about that. Where's the hope in, in a Christmas where you didn't have a very good family? Well, that's where the next Advent comes in. I think Jesus said it best. Look at this passage. Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled, even if you didn't have great Christmases growing up. Trust in God. Trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my Father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything's ready, I'll come and get you so that you'll always be with me where I am. When everything is ready, I'll come and get you. That's the next big advent. Christ's second coming. And that's what sustains our our hope. That's what sustains us through all of the terrible Ds of life. Ds? Yeah, I'm talking about disease and divorce and depression and discouragement and death, and you can name some more Ds. Jesus' return will negate all of that. And just think of all of the stuff that we will no longer need. We'll no longer need chemotherapy and radiation. We'll no longer need hospitals and doctors and nurses and medicines. We'll no longer need mediators and arbitrators and and subpoenas and judges. We'll no longer need funerals and mortuaries and coffins and caskets and, and grave markers. We'll no longer need police or military or weaponry. World peace will sneak and control every nook and cranny. Conflict will cease. The first advent definitely introduced a change. God came near. God came and dwelled among us in the form of that little baby. And we saw that life unfold, and Jesus grew in the nurture and admonition of his father. And it became obvious what God was like after observing Jesus' life. The the change on earth began there, but at the second advent, the conquering king on the white horse, the establishment of his rule in the new earth, oh yeah, yeah, then then the change, now it's forever. It's complete. We've We've got an idea of what it might look like now, but then it will be in full technicolor to the fullest measure. But for now, we hope we hope between the advents. So how do we hang on to hope between the advents? Well, I think hope finds its biggest difference when there's nothing else to hang on to. I have looked at this quote we're about to read by C.K. Chesterton several times, and it's kind of, he, he sets me to thinking some things, some things that I don't normally go to on my own. Look at the quote. Hope means hoping when things are hopeless or it is no virtue at all. As long as matters are really hopeful, hope is mere flattery or platitude. It is only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to find its strength. What do you think? Is he on something? Have we ever lived in a completely hopeless situation? I was thinking... Of all of the times that we have in this ancient document called the Scriptures that seems more hopeless than any other time, maybe it was in the time of Jeremiah the weeping prophet. In his book, it's five chapters. And chapters 1 and 2 and then 4 and 5 are all 22 verses long, each starting with a different letter in the Hebrew alphabet. The the Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters. So it starts in verse 1 with the Hebrew letter, and it talks about how bad it is, all the way down through those verses. In chapter 3, it has 66 verses going through the Hebrew alphabet three times. The book seems to be saying, this was as bad as it could get from A to Z. You realize, he did speak of how bad it was getting there. They were boiling their born children to eat. You hear our precious little Lala speak out in the service right then. Can you imagine a society that decadent? You, you, you would eat children? I, I realize we're bumping up to that with our horrible treatment of the unborn, and I do pray that in our generation that something stems the tide on that, and we are able to stop these atrocities, but boy, that was a bad time in Jeremiah's day, wasn't it? Do you think do you think maybe the people felt hopeless? Is that where hope really really finds a footing? Look how the witness of Jesus explained it. This is the Apostle Paul. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he's promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we, wait. we must wait patiently and confidently. That's, isn't that hope? If I don't yet have a fantastic family, if I don't have a perfect marriage, if I don't have all-believing children and in-laws and grandchildren, Isn't that where hope comes in? Because I have some things around me that that kind of seem hopeless. Isn't hope much more about what is to come? I mean, you guys, what is Christmas without the promise of the second coming? Isn't that kind of like saying, what's the crucifixion without the resurrection? You guys, you take the resurrection away? What does the crucifixion mean? The crucifixion loses its meaning without the resurrection. If Jesus died for my sin, but I'm not going to live forever, well, I mean this respectfully, but who cares? What is the promised second coming if it, that doesn't come on the heels of the first coming? I think Christmas could find even more meaning if we didn't just live in the past and long for comfort, but if we actually lived in the present and we longed for The future. Think about it. Jesus came 2,000 years ago. The last major, I might keep pointing over here for your beginning, the last major advent. And just before he left this earth, after coming the first time, he promised to come back and make everything new at his second coming. The second major advent. So, how do we hang on to hope between the advents? Well, let me get the list started. I think one of the ways is we remember the ending. You already know the end of the book. You know how this story ends. There's a guy in Honolulu named Lyle Arakaki, a native there. He explains that living in Hawaii because of the time differential, that there are some specific things that really affect that. The NFL Monday night football game is aired on Monday afternoon. I mean, it's played on Monday afternoon Honolulu time. So what they do, what the local Hawaii TV stations do is they delay the telecast until 6.30 on Monday evening so everybody can come home and get a bite to eat and enjoy an evening of football. Lyle says, when my favorite team plays, I'm too excited to wait for the television. So he says, I listen to the game on the radio, which is broadcast live. If they win... When I then watch it later on, on the television, I have no problem if they fumble it. Or if they throw an interception. Or if they're behind in the fourth quarter. Because I know who wins the game. That is exactly our situation. When we can better hang on to hope, it's signs that we are reminding ourselves of the ending. You guys, you can endure a lot on earth if you know the ending. Man, that's a rough thing for you and your family to be going through that right now. Yeah, yeah, it's rough. It's causing us a lot of grief. But it isn't going to last. Oh, man, that's a, that's a rough situation to be in that relationship with that person. yeah. Yeah, but I know the ending. We're going to be together one day in heaven, and we're not going to have to go through what we're going through right now. You can endure a lot when you know the ending. I love the story about the little boy and his dad who were planning a fishing trip for the next day. And that night, as his dad was tucking him in, he reached his little arms and put them around his daddy's neck, and he said, Daddy, thank you for tomorrow. I think that little guy is kind of opening our eyes to a really good evening prayer just before sleep jumps on you and you go unconscious. Maybe that's your prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for letting me know the ending of the book. And thank you already in advance for my eternal tomorrow. I can't wait. I think knowing the ending also changes the way we live. Don't you think that there has to be more to this existence than just coasting through life, trying to arrive at death safely? (laughs) Isn't there there more? I mean, when we know the ending, doesn't that kind of empower you? Doesn't that kind of make you want to live a little bit more adventurously? Maybe take more risks? Jim, Jim, not easy there. I just want, I want things to be calm, and then I just want to go to sleep one night and just breathe my life. Is that it? Is that really it? I mean, you got, there's, we've got such a chance here. John Powell tells a story about a woman who said that as a girl she was poor. She said, I grew up in a cold water flat, but I married a man who had money. And he took me up to a place where I had flowers, and I had gardens, and it had grass, it was wonderful, and we had children. Then suddenly, I became physically sick. I went to the hospital, and the doctors ran all sorts of tests. And one night, the doctor came into my room, and with a long look on his face, he said, I'm sorry to tell you this, your liver has stopped working. I said, doctor, doctor, wait a minute, wait a minute, are you telling me that I'm That I'm dying? And he said, I can't tell you any more than that. Your liver has stopped working. We've done everything we can to start it. But we can't get it started again. And then he walked out of the room. She writes, I knew I was dying. I was so weak. I had to feel my way along the corridor down to the chapel of the hospital. I wanted to tell God off. I wanted to tell God, you are a shyster. You've been passing yourself off as a loving God for 2,000 years, but every time anyone begins to get happy, you pull the rug out from under them. And I wanted this to be a face-to-face telling off God. And just as I got into the center aisle of the chapel, I tripped, I swooned, I fainted, and I looked up and there stenciled along the step into the sanctuary where the altar is, I saw these words, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I knew God spoke to me that night. I knew he did. She didn't say how God communicated this to her, but what God said to her was this. You know what this is all about. It's about the moment of surrender. It's about bringing you to that moment when you will surrender everything to me. These doctors, they do the best they can, but they can only treat. I'm the only one who can cure you. And she said, there with my head down on my folded arms in the center of the chapel, repeating, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. She said, I surrendered to God, and I found my way back to the hospital bed, weak as I was. The next morning, after the doctor ran the blood tests and the urine analysis and so forth, he said, your liver has started working again. We don't know why. We don't know why it stopped. And we don't know why it started again. And she wrote, but I knew. I knew why. God had brought me to the brink of disaster just to get me to turn my life over to him. It was in hopelessness that finally she discovered hope. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Maybe one of the greatest sentences of hope ever. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I mean, really, you guys, the audacity of the thief He spends his whole life taking what doesn't belong to him. He even was a part of the cursing with the other thief. Read the account again. Both of them were cursing Jesus when they were first hung on the cross. You don't think that? You go back and look at the account. make you get in your Bibles. He was a part of cursing. And then something happened. Maybe it was when Jesus said, Son, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. Lord, don't hold this against them. They don't know what they're doing. Somewhere along the way, the thief thought something, and he had the audacity, after living a life of wrong, after stealing from people that all of his life, all he did was wrong, he had the audacity to say, would you remember me? And guess what? I don't think it's more hopeless than that. The Lord looks at him, he says, we're going to be together today in paradise. Hope, born out of hopelessness, utter hopelessness. Who is like that? Well, you know, he didn't. He didn't confess that Jesus was Lord, and and he wasn't baptized into His holy name. And I know. Can you believe hope was given in that? Do you think maybe God healing that woman we just talked about and her knowing that he was preparing a place for her and he was going to come back and get her, do you, do you think that might have changed the way she lived her life there on out? Everything changes when we know the ending. And remember, remembering the ending, you guys, that's a good place to start. But I think we need to kind of, it, I think we need to step, we know the end of the story, but I think, we, I think it needs to grow from there while we're here on planet Earth. And I think another vital key is retraining the way we interpret things that happen to us. We live definitely with the end in sight, but we also remember that God is sovereign and that he's in control. And nothing that happens in our life surprises God. Nothing that happens ever makes God say, wow, didn't see that coming. That that doesn't happen. Now, I think you still have your free choice to choose him or to reject him. Day in, day out, I think we still have that ability. But God knows what you're going to do. That doesn't mean we're stuck in some way. That just means he knows it. I think your free will and God's omniscience can somehow come together. In other words... Instead of complaining about the things that come our way, I need to change the way I interpret what comes my way. So instead of me saying, how could a just God let this happen? I instead say, well, just how can I glorify God with what's happened? It takes faith because we have to believe God is at work regardless of what happens. Okay, I'm going to give you a silly illustration, but it makes the point. Zig Ziglar tells a great story about a boy who went with his mother to the general store back in the little house on the prairie days. He liked to sneak away from his mother when no one was looking and he would dip his finger into that large barrel of molasses. mm, He loved it. The storekeeper one time caught him decided he wanted to teach the little boy a lesson, asked his mom if she could do this, if he could do this, and she said, of course. So <laughs> the storekeeper went and picked him up by the britches and put him upside down and dipped his whole head into that barrel of molasses, neck up, nothing but that sweet gooiness, and set him on the front porch, thinking the little guy was gonna learn his lesson and was gonna start crying. Instead, they heard him pray and say, God, give me the tongue to equal this opportunity. I think in a way, that boy was wondering how he could glorify God with what happened to him. Question, is God powerful enough to take whatever situation that you find yourself in right now and to turn it into something that would bring Him glory? Do you think God's powerful enough to do that? Jim, you don't know my situation. Okay, tell me your situation. So your situation that you've just told me is more powerful than God's ability to bring about something that would glorify Him through that? Now you know in your heart that isn't true. You know in your heart that God is more powerful to change anything that has come your way. He's more powerful to do that. So if he's more powerful to do that, then I need to retrain the way I interpret what life throws at me. Our failure to find lasting fulfillment here on this planet is revealing a truth that we all need to embrace. And I, don't, I can't think of a better place that this is succinctly spoken in one sentence than when C.S. Lewis said this. Look at the screen. If I find in myself... Desires which nothing in this world can satisfy. The only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And that is where we find ourselves right now. Between advents and we realize we're made for another world. A new earth. But while we wait, we wait in hope. Hope remembering the ending and hope in retraining the way we interpret life's events. May this Christmas season fill us with hope as we remember Jesus came to the earth 2,000 years ago. And may that fill us with hope as we know that he's going to come again. He promised. He promised. Let's pray.